John chapter 2 is where we'll be this morning. And we'll look at the first of many signs to be seen in this uh, book and this gospel of John. This is the first of Jesus' great acts, miracles, uh, that will demonstrate to us his godness, that he truly is the Son of God, something we've already explored in some depth. If you've been with us, working through John chapter 1, we have seen time and time again this argument being made, Jesus is the Son of God. And we've heard testimony after testimony. John the Baptist testifies that this is the Lamb of God. The disciples, as Jesus calls them to follow him, testify this is the rabbi, this is the king of Israel, this is the Messiah, this is the Son of God. Now Jesus wants to show us that. And we'll see that this morning by reading here of the wedding at Cana in chapter 2, beginning verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee. And manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Pray with me. Father, as we turn to your word and as we enter to recognize not only its truth, but what it conveys about Christ and his glory, we ask that you would help us to be attentive, that we would be enamored with the person and work of Jesus and seeing one who is powerful to make something come out of nothing and to bring joy to this family and to not only bring that in a temporal sense, but he, Jesus, is the one who brings that to us in an everlasting sense. As we see this this morning, would you stir our hearts up to rejoice in Christ? It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, weddings are a pretty big deal. And I think you know that in a contemporary context, weddings are a big deal. And seemingly, there is not much in life that could take the place of something going wrong on your wedding day. There's a lot of things in life that will go wrong, but if something goes wrong on your wedding day, it makes not only for bad pictures, 
but a sour taste in your mouth. You'll always remember that. You'll always look back on that. People will always talk about that. I remember being at a wedding where as the bride is walking in, the veil falls off her head. Not the biggest deal, but it distracts everyone from the focus of this wedding. I've been at the wedding where the girl is, the, the flower girl is walking down the aisle, throwing petals everywhere and singing happy birthday because she didn't understand what she was there for. And so they said, you're just supposed to be happy. It's an awesome day. And so she's saying, happy birthday to the bride and the groom. And no one knows why. And neither does she. If you've been at a wedding or you've ever watched a TikTok video, you've seen the weddings where the cake falls over. Recently, I watched one where there's this huge wedding. They come in with this five-tiered cake, and the two guys drop it on the floor, and the bride is stunned, and the groom takes a spoon and goes over and just starts eating it. It makes for funny memories, good memories, but uh, there are ways, too, in which a wedding can go disastrously wrong. And the one that we're looking at here in John chapter 2, there's not really anything funny about it. There are funny ways in which it could go wrong, but this one, the issue that takes place at this wedding is severe. And I think some of it has to do with the fact that weddings back in Jesus' day are a little bit different to ours. We make it a wedding day. In Jesus' time, it would have been a wedding week. It was just a bigger deal than it is to us today. And I think it tells us something that Jesus' first sign is actually done at a place like this, in a context like this, an occasion like this one, a wedding. Jesus stepping into this wedding, it signifies to us to some extent the sanctity and the, the preciousness of this kind of event to God. God takes marriage seriously. And it's one of these weddings to which Jesus shows up. Not only because marriage is serious, but because marriage is a season of rejoicing. And they understood this well. This would have been a week-long ceremony of celebration for the bride and the groom. Now, if you're going to have a week-long celebration, or what we would call a block party, um, you're going to want to make sure that you can keep it going that long. Even on a wedding day in the current day and age, if you're going to have a great wedding, you're going to want to be sure that if you say the wedding is from 3 to 9 p.m., that people have something to do, something to eat, something to look forward to from 3 to 9 p.m. The wedding that we're looking at here, it's as if the joy runs out a little too soon. The party is over before it's intended to. And that's not coincidental. I think it's because Jesus showed up there. And there's something that Jesus has to do with this wedding that will, in one sense, help save face and bring excitement and joy in the current context. <clears throat> but in another, will express to us something about who Jesus is and why he's worthy of us worshiping him. The issue that takes place at this wedding is pretty serious. And yet Jesus steps in and Jesus has an answer for this problem that will demonstrate to us that Jesus truly is the Son of God. The thing that we have heard over and over, the thing that John, the writer of this gospel, has testified to, the thing that John the Baptist has testified to, 
that John the Baptist is willing to lose his own disciples for the sake of the one who comes after him. The thing that is testified to by these disciples that this truly is the king of Israel. This is the son of God. Now we'll get to see it with our very eyes. Or at least for us today, hear it with our ears. This story is one that puts Jesus exactly where he needs to be. On the throne as God, as one worthy of being worshipped. And so we're going to look at this by means of four different angles, four scenes to this text that will help demonstrate to us that Jesus is the Son of God. But not only that, Jesus is the Son of God who has come to bring us great joy. At this wedding, what was running out was a good time. What was running out was the opportunity to fellowship and to enjoy one another. And Jesus came not only to fix that for them, but to fix that for us. And I want us to see it by means of how this story ties together. Let's look number one here at the party scene. Let's look at the party scene in verses one through two. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. Now, you might have noticed in chapter one, there is a bit of a theme that continues throughout this chapter. Uh, You'll see it in beginning in verse 29. Uh, The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him. Verse 35, the next day again, John was standing with two disciples. Again, verse 43, the next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. And John, in this first two chapters, is traveling with Jesus on his first week of ministry. And now he sets us on this third day where Jesus enters into a wedding. It's the scene of choice for Jesus' first miracle. And I think that's fitting. I think we could expect Jesus to do a lot of things. I don't think we would have expected for Jesus to show up and show out as God at a wedding. I don't think we would presume or assume that that would be his first place of choice. But this is exactly where he shows up, a wedding at Cana in Galilee. In other words, he shows up in his neighbor's town. Cana is a town in Galilee. It's probably noted that way because there is another Cana that exists in Lebanon. So he's trying to specify which this is. And it's helpful to us because this Cana then exists somewhere between five to 10 miles away from Jesus's hometown of Nazareth. So, so this is around the way. This is around the block. And these two towns being smaller towns, they're the kind of community where everyone knows everybody. You know exactly who everyone is because the town is so small. That's the kind of place Cana is. So it's no surprise that Jesus is going to this wedding. It's likely that he knows someone there. In fact, the rest of this verse and verse 2 tell us a little bit more about how that might be. Jesus goes to this wedding at Cana and Jesus' mother is already there. And Jesus is invited to go to the wedding with his disciples. His mom being there, Mary being there, it might tell us something about just how close these families were. The mother of Jesus was there, and it's likely she was already there because she was someone helping with the wedding. That's how close these communities were. 
So Mary was likely at this wedding already as someone who was serving. And the reason that she might have been close to them is that there's great proximity between Nazareth and Cana, or it's even likely she's there because this is someone Jesus knows. Maybe it's someone Jesus grew up with. Maybe it's one of his friends. Because Jesus receives an invitation to this wedding. We don't know all the details and we don't have to fit them in. What we do get to understand is this is a scene where Jesus is welcome. And it's a scene that matters to Jesus. There are a lot of things for Jesus to do. There are a lot of things for Jesus to look forward to. And yet he he decides and desires to make a pit stop intentionally at this wedding. This is the party scene. Let's look at number two, where the problem starts. And the problem starts in verse three. Jesus shows up to this wedding and they've been having a good time. Again, this is a week-long celebration. And Jesus shows up and verse 3 begins, no easing into the tension, no easing into the problem. It just tells you what it is right away. The wine ran out. That's the big issue at this wedding. Now, you might be thinking, my goodness, was Jesus drinking wine? Were these people drinking wine? Oh, wait, let me put it all together. They've been drinking wine for a week. The answer is yes. The other thing to note is wine is not a problem in the Bible. To drink wine is not a problem in the Bible. In fact, the Bible talks about wine in the same way that it talks about joy. Because those two things are linked together. Where wine is, there's typically joy expressed We see this throughout our Bibles. It's noted for you in Psalm 104.15. You can look in Ecclesiastes 10.19 that tells us that wine gladdens the heart. And it's meant to be that way. God designed it that way. And so wine isn't bad, but what happens is when you put good things into the hands of bad people, they easily become abused. So there's nothing wrong with the scene here. There's nothing wrong with what Jesus is doing here. There's nothing wrong with Jesus stepping into a context where wine is plentiful, even if it's run out. Wine is not the problem. In fact, the issue is that there's no more. Think about that. So there's a good way to use this. There is a, a good way to steward that gift. Unfortunately, the issue now is it's been stewarded so poorly throughout the week, there is none left. That's a problem. And where wine has run out, the people suffer. It's like, to, it's like saying the party's over, but it's not supposed to be. And I think that as we think about this problem that has begun here in Cana, we have to understand that what John is doing is he's tying together for us certain things that are happening in real time that reflect to us certain things that are happening spiritually. The wine running out in Cana is a social problem. The party is going to end if someone doesn't come back from Ralph's with something else to drink. The party is going to be over if someone doesn't get it together and bring a cooler back with things that everyone's excited to drink. That's problem number one, that the wedding might be over too soon. 
And you might not think that's a big problem. You go to a party and they run out of Capri Sun and you're just like, well, I guess we're going to In-N-Out. That's fine. But that's not how it worked in this day. This was a huge problem. And there would be a stain on this young family's life for the rest of it if they could not provide more wine for the people. Not only that, this groom might have legal consequences for not providing more for the family and for the people attending this wedding because he's supposed to do that. This is his legal obligation, is to provide enough and he's fallen short. He could be sued by his father-in-law the next morning if he doesn't get this right. This is a big social problem. I think it's also telling us something I think John is also beginning to convey something about a spiritual problem that is also taking place in the hearts of these people and the hearts surrounding these people. The context into which Jesus has entered into is one in which also the wine has run out. I think it's something that the prophets talked about. Isaiah 24, let me read this for you. In describing the judgment of God coming upon the earth, he talks about it this way. Isaiah 24, beginning in verse 4. The earth mourns and withers. The world languishes and withers. The highest people of the earth languish. The earth lies defiled under its inhabitants, for they've transgressed the laws. They've violated the statues and they've broken the everlasting covenant. In other words, they have sinned. They have gone against God. And so what's the price to pay for that? Therefore, a curse devours the earth and its inhabitants suffer their guilt. Therefore, the inhabitants of the earth are scorched and few men are left. The wine mourns. The vine languishes. All the merry hearted sigh. The mirth of the tambourines is stilled. The noise of the jubilant has ceased. The mirth and the lyre are stilled. No more do they drink wine with singing. Strong drink is bitter to those who drink it. The wasted city is broken down. Every house is shut up so that no one can enter. There is an outcry in the streets for lack of wine. All joy has grown dark and the gladness of the earth is banished. Friends, I think Jesus stepped into a context where sure this party needed a little extra drink, but I think also it's a context in which there is a recognition that the spiritual hearts of these people is as dry as the party. What's going on in the people's heart is that they too have run out of joy. The everlasting kind of joy that God desires for his people to have, these people don't have it. Religion and Judaism and all the laws and all the trying and all the rituals, they haven't produced what only God can produce. There is much that's lacking at this party. And what Jesus is going to do is he is going to restore this party and in it demonstrate to us that the problem that Jesus came to solve is not only one about making some more drink for a party, but about being everlasting joy for his people. We know this because of where Jesus takes the conversation. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus says to him, they have no wine. And this would have been an interesting a kind of scene in the room 
Back in these days, weddings were different. They were a week long. And they were also not so different in that all the guys ended up hanging out in one area and all the ladies ended up hanging out in another area. It always happens at the party. I don't know why, unless you're interested in someone and then it doesn't work out, so you go back to your group. That's happening at this party too. Guys and girls hanging out separate areas. So it's, it's as if though Mary has to step into some hallway or come by the door and see if Jesus will walk by so that she can tell him, hey, as I'm serving and as we're getting food out and drink out, we just noticed something. We're out. There is no more wine. And Jesus's response, it's so interesting. Jesus says, woman, what does this have to do with me? And all of you read that and cheered because that's how you talked to your mom last week and you're not allowed to. That's not for you. Jesus isn't some kind of teenager here. He, he's a man. He's a 30-something-year-old 30, 30 man. And even as we dissect this passage and think about this, his speaking in this way, it isn't insensitive. It isn't disrespectful. I think, if anything, it's directional. It's not disrespectful to his mother. It's him trying to help his mother understand, I have a greater purpose than to make more drink for this party, than to do something about that problem. As he calls her woman, it's not a term that's meant to be harsh or critical toward her. In fact, he's going to use the same term when he's on the cross. And he looks to his disciple and he says, look, this now is your mother. This is the one that I need you to take care of. And so he can speak with this word in an endearing way. It's like saying ma'am, if you're from the South. Woman, what does this have to do with me? He sets the scene in contrast is what he does. If we were to pin down the way that this is written, it's actually him saying, what is this to me and what's it to you? In other words, not my problem, not our problem. Why are you telling me? I'm just here to have a good time. What do, you, what do you want me to do about it? And it's not Jesus being disrespectful. It's Jesus understanding the will of God. Jesus understanding what God is at work doing. And that the display of his godness and the display of his goodness, that time is not yet here. We know this because as he asks the question, what does this have to do with me? He then says, my hour has not yet come. Mary says, there's no wine. Implication, do something about it. Jesus in response says, it's not yet time for me to do what I came to do. Jesus understood exactly what he came to do in this world. And sure, he showed up at this wedding. And sure, in a minute, he's going to take over and do something miraculous. But Jesus is more concerned with what he is going to do than what he can do. Is it possible for Jesus to resolve this problem? Yes. But in declaring that his hour has not yet come, it's a reflection of Jesus looking forward to the hour that will come. Whenever we see that term, my hour has not yet come, this term hour or time in your Bible, it's significant because it looks forward to the death of Jesus for his people. 
And so now you can understand perhaps the agony, the tension going on inside of Jesus when he is asked to do something for this party because Mary understands who he is. And in his mind, all he can think of is all that he's going to do one day for his people. To ask him to make more wine is to make him think of the cross that is coming. That's how willing Jesus was to die for his people. In a party like this, where a good time has ran out, Jesus has come to understand and Jesus knows and he wants you to understand that he is fully aware of what he will do for his people. And the true demonstration of how much he truly is God, the true demonstration of his divinity, his deity, his power and his might, it isn't bound to him making more wine for this wedding. Though that does demonstrate to us how powerful he is. The truth of his divinity and his deity is bound up in that he will willingly go to the cross for his people. His mother said to the servants in verse 5, do whatever he tells you. It's an interesting phrase. It mimics Genesis 41 where Pharaoh in seeing that there's about to be a great calamity in the land and they're thinking about who's going to help and who's going to fix this. There's Joseph who has a bunch of great ideas. And when everyone's wondering what to do, he says, do whatever Joseph says. In other words, I have full confidence in Joseph. And I think that this scene sets for us, this problem sets for us a turning point, perhaps even in the life of Jesus and his mother. One in which Mary understands no longer is he subservient to me. No longer am I in his life in some kind of way to be an authority. But instead, I'm now here to demonstrate full confidence in him. Jesus in himself and his response is demonstrating. I'm not here to do my mother's business. I am here to do the work of my father. I have bigger things to attend to. And Mary doesn't push him and doesn't prod him and isn't looking for him to obey. Instead, in verse five, what she does is she expresses confidence or another way to put it is she expresses faith in him. Do whatever it is that Jesus says. Whatever he has to say, I'm sure it'll work out. And she must have known that 30 years with the guy, anytime there was a problem, you just ask Jesus and he already knew what to do. Or if the table had broken down before she left the house, I'm sure it was fixed when she got back. Jesus always had the right solution, always had a right understanding, always had a way to fix things. So it must have been easy to trust in Jesus. But she is seeing now, even in the way that he responds, that his life is about so much more than doing cool things at a wedding. He has his mind set on what he is going to do for his people And so here the problem starts. Wine has ran out. Joy has gone out of this party. How are we going to fix this? Well, let's turn thirdly here to the powerful sign. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. I think this is a helpful Position first to even note, 
Jesus recognized, we should all recognize, isn't simply doing this because Mary said so. Mary's asking seems to come into alignment with what God wants Jesus to do. And so we can take great joy in that because that's actually going to provide a solution to the problem. And so Jesus, seeing six stone water jars there that were meant for purification, and they were probably places where you would wash utensils, maybe even places where you would wash your hands, which was something that Jesus' disciples were often said not to do. And so the Jews and the religious elites would look at them and say, these guys are unclean. How do you hang with these guys? What kind of people are you? Jesus is here taking those instruments used for those purposes and he's going to use them for something completely different. In fact, the place where you would wash your hands or wash your plate is about to be the place where you're going to grab your drink. Grody. I know, but follow with me. Jesus says to the servants, fill the jars with water and they filled them up to the brim. That's an important detail. These jars were filled up to the very brim. Why does that matter? If they aren't filled to the brim, it's really easy to say Jesus put something else in there, right? Jesus did some kind of magic trick. He went and got Welch's grape juice at the store and he brought it back and he filled up the rest of it with some grape juice and now we got wine. Whoop-de-doo, Jesus, way to go. But that's not what they did. The jars are filled. You cannot fill them anymore. It's to stop any question at all about what's about to happen. You can't question this miracle. And so these jars are filled to the brim. And he says, draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. Master of the feast, this would have been someone that's kind of like a wedding coordinator. This guy has been working hard all week at making sure that everything is going right, that food is being served out, drinks are being passed out, that people are having a good time, that joy is something that is heavily expressed in this place, that everyone is happy. And this event would have turned him upside down because what is he supposed to do? Where is he supposed to find something else to drink? But here comes Jesus with a solution And he says, take some of this and take it over to the master of the feast. And so they take it. And the master of the feast, when he tasted the water, now become wine, did not know where it came from. Though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Friends, we have no idea what happened to the water. Nobody knows. There was no spell. We know that much. We don't know if he just took his finger and just did a little stir stir. I have no idea. We just know that one minute the jars are filled with water. You take some out, you put it in a cup and it's wine. We're not meant to understand how that works. That's not the point of the sign. I think the point of the sign is to see that Jesus has rescued this party. So they take some to the master of the feast. He calls the bridegroom and the bridegroom is kind of more like a best man who's supposed to be able to make sure that, uh, you know, not only you know, the, the master of the feast, this wedding coordinator, it's kind of not really his fault if everything is not where it needs to be. He's just there to help it happen. The bridegroom, it's kind of his fault. Like, 
know if you've ever been at a wedding, but if you're a best man, you've got a huge responsibility. Like, you got to make sure your guy looks good. You got to make sure he doesn't have a zit on his forehead. You got to make sure he's got cash in his pocket. You got to make sure that the week before you guys went top golfing and up in the mountains or over the beach or did something awesome. Like, you're supposed to make sure that this thing went well. And if the groom needs anything, it's your job to fix it. This bridegroom almost ruined everything. And here we go. Now it's brought to him. And the master of the feast says, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Jesus doesn't just save this party. He he doesn't just make more wine. What he does is he makes the absolute best version of this drink the world has ever seen. At the end of the party. The opposite way that this would have worked. You would have tried to impress people as they came into the door. Hey, grab a drink. Oh, that's really good. Wow. Thank you. And then a week later, as everything's running out, you're kind of like, it doesn't matter anymore. I just want to go home. Honestly, just give me whatever. What is that dirt water? I'll drink it. That's fine. I'm just, where's the camel? Because listen, pack the kids, pack the toys. I'm sick of it. We got to go home. I can't do this anymore. I got to watch my show. I know it's a puppet show. We don't have a TV, but I just want to go. And so that's what you were doing by the end of the party. You weren't expecting someone to bring up to you the best glass of wine you've ever had in your life. You weren't expecting after drinking cans of Coke to finally be given a glass Mexican Coke with real sugar from the Mecca of all Cokes. It's not how the party works. You get the good stuff first and you get the bad stuff after. At this party, it's topsy-turvy. Jesus presents the very best at the very end. And what is that a picture of for us? What does that communicate to us about Jesus? What is this sign about? Well, this sign is definitely about saving this party. This sign is definitely a testimony of what Jesus can do. And this leads us here into point four, the purpose stated. The powerful sign is that Jesus has taken water and he's turned it into wine. He has done something that absolutely gives us no question that this person is different. In fact, this must be the son of God. So verse 11 says, this is the first of his signs. Jesus did at Cana in Galilee. And manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. This great miracle, this great sign is to testify that Jesus truly is who he says he is. The one that John the Baptist declared would come and take the sin of the world. This is really him. The one that these five disciples have gone after and are following in his footsteps and have declared to be the Messiah. This must be him. The one who has come to take the sin of the world, the one who has come as the son of man, the one who is now the access point between God and man. This must be him. And friends, it has so much more to do with just the fact that he can turn water into wine. I think it has to do with the fact that Jesus brings joy and that kind of joy he brings is eternal. 
The kind of joy that Jesus shows up with. The kind of joy that will come when that hour finally arrives for him to give his life for his people will be everlasting. What Jesus is doing is Jesus is declaring and showing he truly is the Messiah. The one who abounds in joy and the one in whom we should rejoice. The prophets of old told us that where wine ran out, it was a sign of, in some sense, judgment, a sense of God's destruction, a sense of hopelessness. But listen to these words from Isaiah 25, verse 6. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow and aged wine well-refined. This looking forward to the Messiah is what we're talking about. And in Isaiah 25, 6, looking forward to this Messiah who will prepare a feast for his people, a feast rich in food and well-aged wine, we read in verse 9, Isaiah 25, it will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Friends, at this wedding in Cana, we see the revelation of this truth. The Messiah has come. Where wine abounds, joy is full. But it's much more than the kind of drink that God provides for a party. It's about the joy and the gladness that God provides to sinners. Where joy has run out, God promises to restore it in full in the person and work of his son. Jesus came and this sign came to prove that joy everlasting is in his son. It's not the first thing we think of when Jesus comes to mind, is it? We talk about Jesus and we talk about Christianity and the first thing you can think of are rules and things you shouldn't do and things you should do. You don't tend to think about the fact that Jesus wants you to enjoy. I think the reason is you tend to enjoy all the things Jesus gives much more than you enjoyed Jesus. What Jesus came to provide at this wedding was wine like they've never had. And it is a sign to us That in Jesus, we have someone who will not disappoint. Someone who will not let us down. Someone who can fulfill our hearts and satisfy everything we've ever longed for. And provide for us the joy that nothing else could ever give us. That's why these disciples follow him. But I think many of us are like the people at this wedding. We enjoy what Jesus has to give. We just don't enjoy Jesus very much. This is his first sign, manifesting his glory, showing us that he truly is God because God is glorious. And so here comes Jesus to show us his glory and his disciples believed in him. You would think that if Jesus does a miracle like this, And so many saw and so many could see what he did that they would go, let's follow him too. Turns out many people were good with just the wine. 
I think that's exactly the issue. Many people are into Jesus for all the things that Jesus can give them, but they're not in it for Jesus. Many here tasted and saw that the wine was good, but very few saw that the Lord was good. And I think that this is a reminder to us that if we are to take Jesus seriously, we can absolutely enjoy the blessings that he brings to our life. But that only if we cherish in that a perspective that holds Jesus as the highest joy of our lives. There is a joy to be had in a wedding like this at Cana. And yet it reminds us of something that is to come and something that will never be compared to. Those who love Jesus, those who follow Jesus are promised a wedding that far surpasses this. Where Jesus and his people are brought together. And at the wedding feast of the lamb that will come, Revelation 19 talks all about it. There, there will be gladness and rejoicing that can never be taken away. The people at Cana, they all went home. They went back to work. They went back to troubles. They went back to trials. They went back to living life every day the way they have every day before. There is a day coming where Jesus and his people, those who love him, will have joy and that joy to the fullest. That joy everlasting. That joy never breakable. That joy not to be extinguished. This is what this sign points us to. That in Jesus, we have one who does the miraculous. And in this Jesus, we have one who provides for our souls a joy that nothing else could ever give us. This is the purpose of this sign. And I wonder if you know this Jesus. Him making more drink, it absolutely demonstrates to us his godness. But what's more is that Jesus will one day be lifted up and hang from a tree and he will suffer in the place of sinners and he will do that because there is joy on the other side. Hebrews 12 says it so for us. It's for joy that he endured the shame of the cross. Friends, if Jesus endured for our shame so that we might have joy with God, recognize that in him, he has given to you that kind of joy. He has given to you that kind of gladness. He has provided in himself that kind of goodness. I pray that in seeing Jesus in this way, you would recognize that though these folks drank from a cup of wine that made them glad, you can drink from that same kind of cup and receive that same kind of gladness because Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath so that you might know God, but not only that, you might enjoy God. That's why Jesus came. Jesus showed up at this wedding to demonstrate that joy can truly be had in him, that everlasting and eternal gladness is found in him. Pray with me. Lord, thank you for your word and your truth. Thank you that you are the God that brings joy and gladness, and this by means of your salvation. Jesus can do what no other man can do. 
And so out of nothing, out of water, he made wine. He turned it into something that no one else could ever turn it into being. He, he made a drink come into being in exactly a completely different and supernatural process from the way that it's ever been made. And yet all of this testifies to the goodness of Jesus and the joy and the eternal gladness that is found in him. We pray that those who are here today would recognize that in Christ, our hearts are satisfied. Not merely because of all the blessings he gives, but because above all things, he gives us himself. Help us to rejoice and to be glad and to place all of our joy in the person and work of Christ. This we pray in his name. Amen.